All right, good to be with you. Acts chapter 13. You know, in Acts 13, we are continuing the great adventure, which we call the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. He's actually been doing things before this, but this is his first strategic missionary journey sent out by the church in Antioch. I try to imagine what it was like for Paul and Barnabas uh, to come to an area that has so far had no gospel witness at all as far as we know. They are privileged and eager to tell the world about Jesus and the salvation that he brings. They know there's going to be challenges, there's going to be dangers, but sharing the good news is what's motivating them. And it's a lost world, isn't it? It's a lost world, but God has provided a savior for lost human beings, people like me, people like you. Last week we visited the island of Crete with Paul and Barnabas. That was the first country on their, that they visited on their first missionary journey. And as far as we can tell, things went very well there. Uh, there was no serious opposition except for that uh, false pseudo-prophet, false magician guy that uh, couldn't do them very much harm, try as he might. And Crete was a good place to start because there was already some believers there on that island and their ministry was blessed because by the end of their time there, the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, actually came to the Lord. I mean, it says he believed the message. So that's a great start. So once they're done there at Paphos on Crete, they take a ship from Crete and they head north to, pretty much straight north, to a very well-settled, uh, beautiful part of the Mediterranean coast called Antalya. It's just off... Um, just off from there, a little bit deeper inland, just very close by, is a, is a city named Perga. Perga. And um, that was a very significant city. It's uh, a, a in the Roman province of Pamphylia. So Perga in Pamphylia, okay? Perga's a major city. Laura and I have actually been there. It's a very impressive place even today. They've got a fully excavated there was nothing built on top of it so the ancient city is fully excavated you can see the main road that Paul would have walked down on in fact our guides told us that Paul undoubtedly stood in a certain place or would have been at this key place in the city where the roads sort of intersect and beautiful theater there that's still intact um, forum uh, all this Roman things the marketplace a lot of detail there a lot of columns have been set back up all that kind of great great uh, Ruins, you know, all that. So it's a lot of fun. Um, so very impressive. Now, Paul and Barnabas didn't stay long in Perga. They're going to come back to Perga and hit that with the gospel. Instead, they're going to go on. But something goes wrong right there. And that's verse 13 tells us about that. They actually lose a member of their team. It's, as far as we know, it's just the three men. Because John Mark came along. But verse 13 says. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. And came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them. And returned to Jerusalem. So John. That's John Mark. Barnabas's cousin. Apparently he kind of flaked out on them. And we don't know exactly what happened. But he goes home. Uh, the issue is going to come up later. Because Paul took it pretty hard. That John Mark abandoned them. And uh, left the work. And we'll talk about more that again later because that's going to come up as an issue between Paul and Barnabas. But right now, they, they don't stay in Perga. The plan is to preach Christ there on the way back uh, from their journey. They're going to kind of retrace their steps. 
And uh, so they don't stay. They go up into the mountains in a region um, called Pisidia. And there in Pisidia is another city called Antioch. It's got the same name as the city they were sent out from. Um, just like cities all over the U.S. have the same names. Like I grew up in Lafayette. There's a Lafayette everywhere <laughs> because everybody wants to celebrate George Washington's aide-de-camp guy, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette. But anyway, so that Antioch that they're going to is called Pisidian Antioch because it's in Pisidia. So that's to distinguish it from the place um, that Paul and Barnabas were sent out from. Laura and I also got to go to Pisidian Antioch as well, but it snowed really heavily that day. It's a lot higher than the other, than Perga for, cer for certain, which is right on the coast basically. But um, Pisidian Antioch is about 3,600 feet above sea level and we were there in the winter and it just happened to snow pretty heavy on that particular day. But we could see the outlines and the shape of a very large temple there that was devoted to Augustus Caesar. Classic example of emperor worship in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Um, that was a big thing there and he, he was kind of the main god there because that was a Roman colony. Uh, they would take, the Romans would take their soldiers when they retired and they could take them and their families and plant colonies around and that way there was always a base of loyalty in every region so they would build these colonies of loyal Italians or Roman soldiers um, all through the land so it was a pretty clever way to kind of help safeguard strategic points and to kind of have eyes on what was going on that w people that were loyal to Rome in all the different areas of the Roman Empire so Pisidian Antioch was the, at the center of Roman and military affairs in that whole region, much like Caesarea is in the Holy Land or was in the Holy Land at that time. So remember last week we talked about the missionaries' uh, strategy. We called it the kind of the key cities strategy. Cities and synagogues, right? Cities and synagogues. So they would go to key major cities like that, Pisidian Antioch, and they w if there was a synagogue there, they would go in there and start preaching the gospel. That's what happened. So when the Sabbath day came around, verse 14, Paul and Barnabas go straight to the synagogue. Verse 14 says, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. You don't just walk in and start preaching, right? So to get some insight into how this would have worked for Paul on a pretty regular basis as he went to these synagogues in the different cities, an order of service was pretty simple in a synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue would select two texts for the day, one from the Law of Moses and one from the Prophets, and somebody would be invited to read those. And then somebody would be assigned to exhort the congregation to take something from those texts or some um, great truth or some insight that they might have and kind of preach a little sermon there. That was the idea. And if there was a visiting rabbi, especially somebody of Paul's education and stature, they would be accorded the privilege of giving the exhortation. Brother Rabbi, would you mind giving us the exhortation today? And Paul would say, no, 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 no. He, no, he wouldn't say that. He'd say, of course I will. So uh, that was his opportunity. Verse 15, after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. It's just a perfect, perfect opportunity. So here we see a fairly lengthy and detailed account of a gospel sermon from the Apostle Paul. How did he preach Jesus? What did he say? So let's find out. This is Paul's first sermon in the book of Acts. 
But notice, uh, first of all, that he specifically addresses two groups of people in the synagogue. We've talked about this before, but notice it because he makes a real clear point of it here. He talks to his fellow Jews and he talks to these people called God-fearers. Those are Gentiles who attend synagogue and worship the true God, even though they have not fully converted to Judaism. They haven't become circumcised. They haven't become yoke fellows of the law. They don't put themselves under all the restrictions of the diet and all that. But they worship the true God and they're welcome to do that as Gentiles in the synagogue. So he addresses both of them. Verse 16, um, Paul stood up motioning with his hand saying, Men of Israel and you who fear God. That's, see, that's that other part of the group there. Listen, he says. So he addresses um, both groups and nearly every synagogue spread throughout the empire would have had both groups. Jews and these God-fearers. So the message is really well crafted um, and it shows why Paul was such an effective communicator and it's full of Old Testament references. So if these people knew their Bible, which they probably did because it was read all the time there in the synagogue, probably in Greek in this area, they would have read from the Greek Bible. And of course, uh, we have a brief version of this speech. It wasn't something you could read through in five minutes. I'm sure it wasn't a five minute talk, but, uh, but this is a clear outline of the things that he said. And we can clearly see how he's making a case for Jesus here. So there's three main sections and they're broken up pretty easily. Um, he starts off with men of Israel. And then the second section starts when he says brethren. That kind of gets their attention for the second part. And then he's going to say brethren again. So Verse 16, men of Israel, he prepares this brief historical review on the Messiah. Then brethren, verse 26, he declares to them what has occurred regarding Jesus of Nazareth. And then therefore, brethren, in verse 38, he applies what it means that Jesus has come. He applies it to them. What does it mean for you? So that's the way we're going to do it. I'm basically going to be preaching Saul's sermon here. So Paul's sermon. So um, that's it. So men of Israel, brethren, therefore brethren. That's the outline. So after men of Israel, he starts with this short historical summary of the history of Israel leading up to King David. Obviously King David's super important because that's where the messianic promise was amplified rather dramatically through the promises God made to David, the David, Davidic covenant as we call it. So he tells them all about God's fulfilling his promises to David in verse 17. It says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. That's a great way to say it. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him he God raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said I have found David son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. So notice God is making all of this history happen. P Paul specifically says that God is doing every aspect of it. He's, he's totally in charge. He ordains all of it. Now David of course is the key figure because the messianic promise to him 
is regarding one of his descendants and everybody in Paul's audience would have known about the Davidic covenant that appears in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 16 and it says God says to David your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever now God doesn't make that promise to anybody else but he does make it to David so and there's many other Old Testament passages that connect up with that uh, Isaiah chapter 9 Daniel chapter 7 they point to one man who will fulfill this promise and reign forever and that's the long awaited Messiah of course so Paul's audience would have known all of those things so in this message in verse 22 um, Paul refers really to 1 Samuel 13 14 where God tells tells Saul the wicked king he says but now your kingdom shall not endure this is the king before David right your kingdom shall not endure the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you so that's what the Lord had told Saul and Paul is summarizing that here so in verse 22 Paul mentions a direct quote from God about David I have found David that's not in 1st Samuel those actual words are in Psalm 89 Psalm 89 I want you to turn there so we're going to look at that together a little bit because that's a really remarkable Psalm and it's quite informative on a lot of re- for a lot of reasons theological as well as just uh, helping us grasp what they would have understood and what the, the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah you might remember that the latter portion of David's reign was kind of a disaster um, he had a lot of difficulties mostly brought on by his own failures and weaknesses his sons rebelled he lost the respect of many people things were really hard um, and Psalm 89 was written apparently during those times it, it recounts the promises God made to David and the anguish uh, of David's heart and his men as they contemplate their difficult circumstances this psalm was not written by David but it's about that period of time so if you skip all the way down to the bottom we're going to come back up to the top in a minute but if you look down at the bottom you can see the anguish in them verse 46 how long O Lord will you hide yourself forever will your wrath burn like fire remember what my span of life is for what vanity you have created all the sons of men what man can live and not see death can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol Selah where are your former loving kindnesses O Lord which you swore to David in your faithfulness remember O Lord the reproach of your servants how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached O Lord with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed so they're just not seeing the favor of the Lord and their hearts are broken over it uh, have you ever felt like that life life can be like that sometimes can't it which is where are you what's going on praying we're seeking we're repenting and uh, life's hard you know circumstances are really difficult well it can be that way now that's at the end of the psalm and it follows all of these marvelous promises so Um, let's move our eyes back up to the top of the psalm there in in Psalm 89 verse 2 I have said loving kindness will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness I've made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to David my servant 
I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations forever. All generations. There's a lot of forever kind of language there isn't it? That's some promise that was made to David. And as I said before made to no other king. No other king received any kind of promise like that. And then there's more about his throne. If you look down to verse 19. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from my people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me you are my father my God and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Then verse 28. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. His throne is the days of heaven. That's, a, that's forever language too right there. But notice that God says his loving kindness he will keep forever. That's why later in the psalm because things are going so bad they're saying what happened to that loving kindness part you know. We all have to wait for that right. We all have to wait on this earth for loving kindness to shine through at certain points. Anyway so his throne is at the, as, as the days of heaven. Then skip down to verse 35 he said once I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. So if you see the, the sun show up every day and the moon show up every night that's the certainty with which this is going to happen for David, David's descendants. So but let's face it Israel was racked by sin after David's time. They were judged. They lost their sovereignty. Uh, first to Babylon and then to the Greeks. The descendants of Alexander the Great's generals. And then to Rome. And by the first century no kings had sat on David's throne. No Davidic kings for a long time. But still there was this promise right. The promise. So the Jews looked for a son of David. The long awaited one. The Messiah. They searched their scriptures. And waited for him. Prayed for him. Sought him. So no matter how hard. Things were for Israel. The promises were always there. There's also a remarkable affirmation in Ezekiel. Uh, the prophet of the captivity. And uh, you know Israel was destroyed. And the people taken off into captivity. And Ezekiel was the prophet of the captivity. And the Lord gave this word to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 21 for 24. 21 24. Therefore thus says the Lord God. Because you have made your iniquity to be remembered. Their sin. In that your transgressions are uncovered. So that all your deeds in all your deeds your sins appear because you have come to remembrance you will be seized with the hand and you O slain wicked one the prince of Israel whose day has come and the time of the punishment of the end thus says the Lord God remove the turban and take off the crown this will no longer be the same exalt that which is low and abase that which is high a ruin a ruin a ruin I will make it 
this also will be no more until until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. That's a messianic reference. And Paul's message in Acts 13.23 is Messiah has come. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. I can't think of a simpler, more direct, beautiful way of saying it. For the des- from the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Now every Jew expected the Messiah to come, but they also expected him to have a forerunner, uh, Elijah, to bring him or introduce him. And he came and he was well known throughout the Jewish world. So God brought us to Israel a savior, Jesus, then look at verse 24, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now we know that saying appears in the Gospels. It's interesting that Paul says John kept saying that. He, he always made reference to that. He frequently made reference to the coming Messiah, the coming one whose sandals he, a great prophet, was unworthy to untie. So Paul takes his time talking about John the Baptist. He gives a lot of information here. He talks about John like they know about him in Pamphylia. And they probably do because John was very famous among the Jewish people. Even the Jewish historian Josephus writes about John the Baptist. So people knew about him, even people who lived far away. In fact, when we get to Acts chapter 18, Paul is going to meet a preacher named Apollos. You might remember that guy in Ephesus of all places, which is even farther away um, than Pamphylia from Israel. And he knows about John the Baptist. So um, think of all the pilgrims that would take pilgrimages to the Holy Land from all over the Roman Empire and see what was going on there and then come back and guess what happens when you come from a long trip to an important place everybody wants to hear about what's going on there right so you would tell the stories about what was current and John the Baptist was big news Jesus would be big news later too they probably heard about him at some level too so travelers are always a source of news in the ancient wider world right so um, Paul is quoting John as the forerunner of the Messiah Was it not John who said, Behold, one is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie? They they would have known about John the Baptist. So that's like a really important point that, that Paul is making there. They expected a forerunner of the Messiah. They've heard about John the Baptist. Paul tells them what John the Baptist actually said about the Messiah coming. And there it is. So he's gotta be here. John's gone, he's dead. Where is he? Well, he said. Jesus, the, a savior, God has provided him. That's who it is. Okay, now we're going to the second part of the outline. What's the key word we're looking for? Brethren, right? Verse 26. So he's going to tell them what happened with Jesus now. Brethren, son of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, both groups, right? Sons of Abraham's family and those of you that fear God. To us, this message of salvation has been sent. So Paul very clearly includes the God fearers again. So this message of salvation he brings the message about Jesus is for them too. The message of salvation has come in our day. That's what he's saying. And now he addresses directly what the leadership in Jerusalem did with Jesus. 
and he's very succinct but very clear. Uh, so try to imagine hearing this story, this part of it for the first time as a first century Jew living far away from the Holy Land. They may have heard of parts of this or aspects of this but Paul's telling them straight up what happened. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, verse 27, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled these by condemning him. They fulfilled the prophecies they've read their whole lives by condemning Jesus uh, even though that was a wicked act. They didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand the scriptures they read every Sabbath and knew, ever, knew very well. And what they did to Jesus was exactly what the prophets foretold. Obviously we know about Isaiah 53 where it talks about the death of Jesus. Psalm 2. Um, those are the most detailed looks at his suffering. But let's look at verse 28 then. Paul goes on. And though they found no ground for putting him to death. They asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So he's dead. Paul what makes you think he's the Messiah then if he's dead? Well he's not done. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Wow. So preaching the gospel in the book of Acts always heavily emphasizes the resurrection because that was the big event. That was it. That's the proof of Jesus. A dead man doesn't prove anything. A, 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 another dead pretender maybe you know. It doesn't say anything. But the resurrection changes everything. Nobody comes back from the dead. But Jesus did. Ironically putting Jesus to death fulfilled the very prophecies the leaders of Israel did not understand. But that's not the end of the story because he is risen. And that's the common thread of every apostolic witness of every gospel sermon in the book of Acts. We have seen him. He is risen. And that means God has fulfilled his promise. Verse 32. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to our fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. That's the fulfillment. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there's the Messiah, Jesus as the son of God. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. In the resurrection, God has put his stamp on the sonship of the Messiah as well. Then in verse 34, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 55. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So all those promises made to David, the eternal kingdom and all of that, it's going to Jesus. And he's not done yet. Just like Peter in Acts chapter 2. Now Paul's going to use Psalm 16. I told you there was a lot of scripture in here. He uses Psalm 16 to show that the Messiah would not stay dead. And that's what Peter did in Acts 2. God promised David's descendant that he would not undergo decay. He would not decay. Verse 35. Therefore he also says in another psalm. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. 
fell asleep, he died, and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So you see how he's building this incredible case out of their own scriptures? None of those scriptures, prophecies, are about David himself, and that's the proof of it. David died and he's gone, but his house, his seed, as so many of those prophecies say, his descendant, David died, but his descendant, Jesus, rose from the dead. That's how we know he's the Messiah. That is what confirms this most remarkable of all men in history that he is much more than just a man. You know, all the other leaders and thinkers and religious people and philosophers and gurus, they're dead. They're dead. And it's not a coincidence that the one man that so outshines them all in his goodness and his wisdom, that's the one that rose from the dead. Isn't that strange? And the witnesses of the risen Christ sealed their witness with their lives. Not one denied it in the face of death. No one faced with horrible death said he was not risen. They affirmed that to the very end. That's testimony. That's legal testimony. There are many witnesses. The resurrection isn't some story that was floating around. There were lots of witnesses and it was proclaimed from day one. This isn't some myth that sort of developed over time. From day one, that's what was the heart of Christianity. He is risen. That was, that's the story that was told based on eyewitness accounts from the very, very beginning. So the resurrection of Jesus is, is deeply rooted in historical evidence, eyewitness evidence. It's not a myth. It doesn't even have the features of a myth except that it doesn't happen. You know, people don't come back from the dead. But it has way more historical weight than a typical mythological story about somebody. Um, there were immediate eyewitnesses to it and those eyewitnesses paid with their lives for the veracity of their testimony. And the whole, all these men in the church was birthed, they changed, they were transformed, they became world-changing individuals. All of that's in play here. So the congregation in that synagogue in Pisidian Antioch heard an eyewitness and everything he said matched what scripture says about the Messiah. Okay, the third part of the sermon. The third brethren. And this is an appeal now. He's going to bring it home. He's going to tell them what it all means. And he's describing salvation. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through him Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. The law cannot give you forgiveness. As much as we admire Moses and the law, it condemns, it doesn't bring forgiveness. The law cannot set you free because it chains you to the judgment of God. The word freed here is actually the same word that's often translated justified in the New Testament. Some translations do that. I know the New King James does it. So you can't be right with God. You can't be justified before God on the basis of the law of Moses. That's what Paul is saying. The law makes you guilty, not right with God. So the law doesn't save, does it? It just shows us that we're really sinners because we don't keep it very well. The good news and it's very 
good news is that there is total and complete forgiveness by faith in Christ Jesus. The next verses are really interesting. Maybe Paul was getting some pushback or saw a reaction there that was concerning him but he's ready and uh, he, he draws his next pistol which is the book of Habakkuk the prophet Habakkuk and it's a warning and he warns them about a failure to respond properly to this great truth. Verse 40 therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you and then he quotes the book of Habakkuk and this is how he ends it. Behold you scoffers and marvel and perish for I am accomplishing a work in your days a work which you will never believe though someone should describe it to you. Wow. In Habakkuk's day uh, God used a pagan nation to punish idolatrous Israel. It was completely unexpected that God would do that. They were all trusting in their Abrahamic blood to preserve them and to protect them and they were wrong. God does the unexpected thing and here he's doing it again. He's bringing Jews and Gentiles together by faith in Christ Jesus the risen Savior. That's the message and Paul's just warning them at the end there don't reject this. Don't think this is too fantastic or some kind of weird story. It's, it's what God is doing. He's doing this amazing thing today and you're hearing about it now. So respond to Jesus. The result was awesome. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. That's, that's how you want to go out with your sermons. Just telling you as a preacher. Please tell us more. Oh you ended too soon. That doesn't happen that often around here but it does occasionally. But anyway verse 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up many of the Jews and of the God fearing proselytes the two groups right followed Paul and Barnabas speaking to them they were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So they're encouraging the congregation there to continue in the grace of God. You've heard this. This is the salvation. You're excited about it. You need to continue in it. So they were very interested. Tell us more. Come back. Oh come back next, next Saturday. Come back on the next Sabbath and tell us more. And what were Paul and Barnabas emphasizing to them as they were departing? The grace of God. The grace of God. So that must have been part of that sermon as well. Just really emphasizing that aspect of it. The gospel from day one was grace through faith. That's how you're saved. Salvation by grace through faith. Never let anybody tell you anything different than that. That's the gospel. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace through the merits of Jesus Christ. Plus nothing. Faith. What is it? It's personally confessing Jesus as Lord from the heart. He is my Lord and accepting his sacrifice as fully sufficient for all of my sins to take care of all of my sins for the forgiveness of my sins. So he is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. That's all it is. That's putting faith in Jesus that will bring you to eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that was preached since the very beginning. It's the gospel I heard. It's the gospel you're hearing right now and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Believing is more than just believing facts. Faith in the Lord is choosing him above all other things. 
that's the path and it's the only path to salvation. So the first Sabbath day at Pisidian Antioch is by all appearance, all appearances a great success. It just is fantastic. There's great interest in the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas are going to come back on the next Sabbath. But that day is going to reveal more mixed results uh, as those who oppose the gospel have time to, they have a week to get ready. So they're going to fight against them. They're going to bring opposition to what they're saying. So it's not going to be as easy next time. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Lord, we see here the same message that we heard It was there at the beginning, grace and faith. The risen Jesus, the forgiveness of sins by him, by his merits. All of it's there for us if we want it. If we would just latch onto him and embrace him as our Lord and Savior. So we pray that you would awaken our hearts to this great truth if we haven't done that yet. And if we have, to simply rejoice in this message that's been preached for 2,000 years and transformed so many lives and granted forgiveness and mercy so that we will be with Jesus when we pass from this world. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll pick it up right there next time, Acts chapter 13.